Hi, everyone, and welcome to our latest edition of Essential Antitrust. Now, in the last few years, there's been a decided uptick in competition regulators and politicians talking about the risks of transactions that eliminate so-called nascent competition. And sometimes we hear these referred to as killer acquisitions. And they often come up alongside concerns about competition law under enforcement, especially in the tech and pharma sectors. Now, today I'm fortunate to have three experts who are here to talk to us about this topic and give a global tour of what antitrust regulators in the US, the EU, the UK, and Asia are thinking about this topic. First, we have Nanette Dodu, who's a partner in our Beijing office, where she's the co-head of our China antitrust practice. Thanks for joining us, Nanette. Thank you, Jen. Thank you so much for having me today. Next, we have Sharon Molly, who's a senior associate in our London office, where she focuses in particular on antitrust investigations and transactions in the tech and pharma sectors. Happy to have you here, Sharon. Thanks, Jen. Great to be here. And finally, we have Jan Ribnicek, who's a counsel in our Washington, D.C. office. And Jan has the distinct honor of being the first repeat guest on the Essential Antitrust podcast. So welcome back, Jan. Hi, Jen. Good to be with you again. So let's get into it. You know, Jan, I'm going to start with you. What do we mean when we talk about nascent competition? What are the regulators really interested in here? Right. So nascent competition theories of harm relate to concerns that an acquisition or some form of exclusionary commercial conduct might snuff out a fledgling company that, you know, although not yet an important competitor, likely would become and grow into a key competitor or or a key competitive threat in uh, the relevant market in the future. It's, it's related to the concept known as potential competition or the potential competition doctrine, which describes a situation in which a company does not yet compete in a relevant market, but is likely to enter or begin competing in the near term, maybe because it's in an adjacent business or it's expanding geographically. Um, nascent competition cases inherently kind of involve facts that are that make them more difficult for regulators as well as for businesses evaluating risk. Um, while while antitrust often is predictive, right? Um, the questions raised in, in nascent competition cases require regulators and judges to speculate more than they do in ordinary cases. But the concept's not new in any way. Antitrust authorities have long evaluated harm from the elimination of nascent competition. Uh, maybe the most well-known U.S. case on this point is the DOJ's lawsuit against Microsoft two decades ago. There, the DOJ alleged that Microsoft had targeted Netscape Navigator and Sun's Java uh, as nascent competitive threats in uh, to, to Microsoft's PC operating system monopoly. But nascent competition concerns have grown. They've certainly grown in significance in recent years. Uh, as, as a result of antitrust enforcement agencies feeling increased pressure from, from the public and Congress to, to act more decisively. Um, this is maybe nowhere more true than in the tech sector, as you say, Jen, um, and, and with issues related to innovation. Uh, in fact, as many know, the Federal Trade Commission and, and 48 U.S. states and territories uh, filed lawsuits against Facebook based on nascent competition concerns tied to the company's acquisition of Instagram in 2012 and, and WhatsApp in 2014. Although the FTC reviewed those transactions prior to their closing and, and chose not to challenge them at the time, the agency now uh, has alleged that those transactions eliminated potential competitors in, in the market for uh, personal social networking. 
but but tech is by no means the only sector in which nascent competition concerns uh, uh, may arise. Maybe the best example of nascent competition concerns is in the is in pharma transactions. Their regulators have have assessed whether one company's pipe, pipeline product may compete against another company's marketed product, or even if two pipeline products might compete against each other in the future. So, and there the analysis arguably is somewhat easier than in, in many cases because you have a regulatory framework for the drug approval process that gives you milestones and benchmarks for evaluating the likelihood of product entry. But, but the analysis is very similar to what we're seeing in the tech sector and in other industries uh, today. Yeah, and I think that's I think that is right, and that's really interesting when you look at the parallels across from from the pharma space in, into the tech space. I mean, the two thousand and eighteen Cunningham study that looked specifically at acquisitions in the pharma sector, in fact, only found, even on a conservative basis, that there were really only somewhere between five to seven percent of acquisitions that could, you know, in previous speak be described as killer acquisitions. But I think you know I think you're right that actually you know there are great challenges and important differences when we're looking at the concept of nascent competition outside of pharma, so in, in, in tech in particular, because unlike in pharma, where clearly the focus and the focus in the Cunningham study was incumbents acquiring innovative targets solely to, to discontinue those um, innovative projects as a means of preempting future competition, that's not really what the cases are showing in tech. I mean, we're seeing further innovation, a real emphasis on building that innovation out, no increase in prices, and a focus really on product differentiation and, and multi-homing. So quite different to, to pharma treatments as such. I mean, today, you know, we can just see TikTok's been announced as the most downloaded app. And so there clearly is space in the market to accommodate uh, innovative players. So it's, I think, too simplistic um, to, to just presume um, that all um, mergers in, you know, by tech companies here are, are problematic. So that, that view has been endorsed by a number of independent reports. Uh, in the UK, the report led by Jason Furman and others had also found actually that acquisitions of smaller firms by larger tech companies shouldn't be presumed uh, to pose a, a special threat and actually talking about Facebook and Instagram and, and the litigation um, in the US, the report from economic consultancy LEA, which was commissioned by the UK Competition and Markets Authority, also found evidence was broadly inconclusive. So it didn't prove that Instagram, even on a retrospective look, was particularly well placed to compete against uh, Facebook. Um, and it acknowledges that Instagram has likely benefited from a number of integration and, and, and other benefits since. And I think we're seeing that time and time again. The same report makes similar observations for Google Waze, Priceland, Kayak, Expedia, Trivago. So I think a more nuanced um, analysis is, is actually needed. And, and really, uh, this is quite some crystal ball gazing to to, to be predicting you know, just how a target would have evolved um, in this space. Jan, you mentioned, you mentioned that this type of theory of harm isn't really new. I mean, regulators have looked at potential competition for, for decades in some cases. Um, but what actually is new here? What are, what are the cases that are kind of bringing this to the forefront and making this uh, topic so prominent in the antitrust discussion in the last couple of years? Right, it's it's a great question. Uh, you know, I think 
a lot of this has to do with the, the pressure antitrust regulators are facing, and, and that leads to them being maybe more willing to, to make those types of inferences about what is or isn't likely to happen in the future. And, and, and in the nascent competition space, that, that means that there are increasingly uh, more cases. Uh, earlier this year, the FTC sued to block Edgewell's uh, $1.4 billion acquisition of, of the razor upstart company Harry's. There, Harry's had a market share of, of less than 3%, but the FTC viewed it as a disrupt, disruptive and uh, disruptive player and, and somebody that was likely to grow. Uh, in, in the same vein, the FTC challenged um, Illumina's uh, billion-dollar acquisition of Pacific Biosciences earlier this year. And, and there again, PacBio was a, a nascent competitor with a, approximately 2.5% share. So again, a very small player, but but the FTC believed that PacBio was poised to take more business from Illumina if it were allowed to, to continue independently. Again, you know, a couple of years ago, the FTC challenged um, CDK's acquisition of, of a rival company, Automate, where the companies competed in in essentially vendor software for for car dealers. There again, uh, you see the the acquisition target having two percent share or less, but but the FTC viewed uh, the company as an innovative and disruptive player in the market. So in each of these cases, in fact, the the, the parties abandoned the deals after the FTC challenged the transactions, um, and, and so the FTC has been relatively successful with these cases too, and and maybe that has also emboldened them. But but I don't want to suggest that the DOJ hasn't been active um, on the on the nascent competition issues. There, they they also challenged the um, the Saber Fair Logics transaction in 2019, and then most recently the Visa Plaid uh, transaction uh, in 2020. That's really interesting, Yum. In contrast, in China, we haven't seen many cases involving an analysis of potential competition. Where we have seen this, it's typically in the context of analysing barriers to entry. Um, so, for example, the long-form notification form in China requires parties to identify uh, potential competitors where applicable. There are exceptions to this. For example, in the pharma space, where we have seen some discussion of potential competition. An example is the review of Becton Dickinson's acquisition of BARD in 2017 by the Ministry of Commerce. Becton Dickinson was the incumbent competitor in relation to a particular device. Before the transaction, it was investing in an R&D project for a new kind of device, which had disruptive, innovative potential. This would pose a direct challenge to BARD's existing technology and thereby threaten BARD's long-standing market-leading position. Mofcom was concerned that the transaction would enable BARD to eliminate this potential competitor. As a remedy, it required Beckton Dickinson to divest the relevant product line and also relevant R&D uh, products. The other context in which potential competition can arise, albeit tangentially, is in the context of assessing the impact of a transaction on national economic development. China is also unique in that it requires, during the review of a transaction, that a transaction's impact on the nation's national economic development should be factored into the analysis. Effectively, this requires an assessment of the future competitiveness of domestic players or domestic industry. 
So this is inherently part of the overall assessment. Whilst SAMR will focus on competition issues, the stakeholders consulted during its market investigation can and do raise such industrial policy considerations. And indeed, inevitably, some of the behavioural remedies imposed in China are designed to address these concerns. And so here you see an assessment of potential competition more in the framework of an analysis of industrial policy considerations. I think one interesting point about uh, the, the the nascent competition theories is how active the U.S. has been relative to other jurisdictions. Uh, as you say, say Nanette, um, this hasn't really peaked uh, in China necessarily outside the pharma space. But in the U.S., there is evidence, as I mentioned, that that this is an area that the U.S. regulators are particularly interested in. Um, I think one example of that is 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 the DOJ's case in Visa Plaid. That is a case or or a transaction that was cleared by the U.K.'s CMA uh, in phase one. And here in the U.S., the DOJ is pursuing um, an injunction in federal court in the Northern District of California to to stop the transaction. And on its face, the the transaction didn't raise any obvious antitrust uh, risks. There's no product overlap. There's no no vertical relationship between the parties. Visa is in the business of enabling merchant consumer transactions and Plaid on the other hand is um, essentially connects fintech apps with uh, users' bank accounts. But the DOJ believes the company's internal documents tell a different story and that Visa perceives Plaid to be a threat um, to the company. And part of that, I think that the DOJ believes is true because of the the acquisition price, which is $5.3 billion. Uh, and the DOJ thinks that that is evidence that Visa believes it's eliminating a, a competitive threat. Now, Visa, on the other hand, thinks that the DOJ has completely missed all the benefits from the transaction, including Visa's ability to integrate its payment functionality, to create a new and better product for Plaid's customers, and to expand that product geographically. So that's all going to be seen in, in potentially in, in federal litigation here in the U.S. and, and potentially uh, create some new precedent on the nascent competition theories of harm. That's really interesting, Jan, because I think what's really coming through here is it's a real desire by by the authorities all around the globe to really be, be seen to be getting involved and, and taking a good hard look at, at these transactions. I think in, in the UK in particular, it's taking an expansive approach to its jurisdictional tests so that it can capture as much as possible using its very flexible share of supply test. And in fact, uh, the ongoing appeal um, by uh, Sabre Fair Logics to the Competition Appeal Tribunal right now is accusing the CMA of doing exactly that, of, of gerrymandering essentially the jurisdictional share of supply test to be able to capture uh, anything that looks um, like it touches upon nascent competition. We've seen in Roche Spark the CMA uh, looking across at a, a marketed product and a pipeline product to be able to capture both of those things within the share of supply test, even though uh, in that case, Spark had um, had no marketed treatments uh, in the UK. And I think what that really means here is, you know, in the last 18 months, and, and Jan, as you um, also mentioned for the US, this, the CMA's decisions now are really contributing to the collapse of a number of deals and deals that frankly don't have a, a particularly obvious UK nexus. 
So we've seen Sabre Fair Logics, um, you know, abandoned. We've seen Sengage McGraw, Illumina, PacBio, Therma Fisher, Taboola, Outbrain. And and what's clear here is that the CMA is really not afraid to to chart its own course. So in Sabre Fair Logics, that's a prohibition there by the CMA in Phase Two, despite the party winning in U.S. litigation. And in Thermo Fisher Gaytan, we've seen the CMA refer that deal to phase two, again, despite there being no, no second request in, in the US. So I think it's an interesting time, and particularly post-Brexit, um, where the CMA in particular is, is really pushing to, to get a hold of these transactions and to be able to take a good hard look. And I, I guess that's probably the most new aspect is its real um, willingness to do that, even when it means taking quite an expansive approach to getting there. So thanks, Sharon. And I mean, I think that's interesting and probably a trend that we are only going to hear more and more about uh, come January 1st, post-Brexit, when the CMA can, in theory, get its hands on more cases than it can today. Um, but I'd like to, to shift the conversation a bit and, and talk to you all a little bit about data. So often, you know, we hear about these kind of killer acquisition or nascent competition theories in the context of uh, targets that potentially have access to a bunch of interesting data from their users. Um, Nanette, can you maybe just give us a little bit of, of kind of conceptual background on why those issues go hand in hand and, and what role data seems to play in these cases? Yes, happy to do so, Jen. Um, well, data is increasingly regarded as an invaluable asset and, and really critical input in the digital economy. Um, if I take China as an example, in recently published draft guidelines on the digital platform economy, data is deemed an essential facility. Now, that's obviously controversial because most jurisdictions rarely, if ever, refer to um, would refer to data as an essential facility. And the term essential facility is usually used in the context of physical infrastructure, say ports, telecommunications um, infrastructure and so forth. So the concern is whether the acquisition by a large incumbent of a data-rich nascent rival, i.e. a rival, for example, with disruptive technology, which while not actually reducing competition substantially in the short term, will eventually deprive consumers in the future of lower prices, better products and or uh, more choices. Um, competition authorities are, are taking a hard look at data and its impact from two perspectives. The investment decisions that companies make, uh, an impact on innovation. And, and as far as investment decisions, both Jan, uh, Jan and, um, um, and Sharon have mentioned um, some of these large transactions and how authorities are relying on on the size of the transaction as evidence of the value the incumbent is attaching to the particular data. Typically, nascent rivals will have an asset or product, here data, that becomes successful before generating significant revenue. So the filing thresholds are, are not met. Some jurisdictions such as, say, Germany or Austria have introduced new thresholds based on transaction value. Uh, and this is intended to capture those transactions which are inherently valuable, but where the data uh, is reflected um, in the value of the transaction. 
Turning to the substantive analysis in terms of the economics or impact on innovation, um, the question then becomes how valuable is the target to the incumbent's business um, as a potential source of user data? And so the sorts of questions that uh, authorities uh, will be asking themselves is how likely is that acquisition to prevent significant competition from emerging? Uh, will the incumbent's acquisition create anti-competitive barriers to future entrants? Will the transaction impact the type of data the incumbent is able to collect, use, or store? Uh, will access to the potential source of user data strengthen the incumbent's position as a result of the increased amount of data which will come under its control? Um, and answers to some of these questions will inform the evidence needed and the degree of speculation, the, the degree of crystal ball gazing that the, an authority can reasonably make. The impact on competition is more likely to be significant um, the higher the incumbent's market share in its, in its dominant market, um, uh, market where it's active, uh, the greater the competitive significance of the nascent rival and the greater the competitive threat posed by this potential entrant relative to others. So these are some of the considerations which become relevant in terms of assessing the role um, of data and its evaluation um, in the context of acquisitions involving nascent competition. It seems then, Nanette, that everybody will need to be very prepared to, to engage in pretty in-depth investigations, I guess, whenever data is concerned. So when you've got both uh, a data set that, uh, that an authority might want to explore, whether that is uh, indispensable in some way, that it could be considered an essential facility uh, and uh, layered on with, it, with a nascent uh, competitor, uh, but ultimately, we're yet to see a deal that's been prohibited because uh, of a data-driven theory of harm. So it'll be interesting to see if that changes going forward. So I think, you know, you've all told us quite a lot about some of the really interesting cases that are happening in your respective jurisdictions in the, in the past few years. But it'd be interesting to know, too, you know, what kind of regulatory and legislative proposals are on the horizon to deal with this? Do we, do we expect anything on that front? Um, Sharon, maybe you can kick it off talking about the EU and UK. Thanks, Jen. It, it's a really interesting time uh, in terms of regulatory proposals, both in the EU and the UK, uh, particularly as on the 15th of December, we're expecting the European Commission to announce its Digital Markets Act, which will essentially be framed as a set of do's and don'ts uh, for firms that the Commission will designate as having gatekeeper status. Uh, something that the Commission really sees um, as a way of supporting nascent competitors uh, in the future. But in terms of uh, regulatory proposals that have already been announced uh, in the mergers context, in the UK we've had the recommendations of the UK Digital Markets Task Force that have recommended to the UK government uh, two key things. The first is a a reporting obligation that uh, it recommends should apply to firms that have so-called strategic market status and that those firms should be required to report all of their transactions uh, to the CMA. Um, so any acquisition at any shareholding level 
Um, and in a sense, the idea is then that the CMA would have a bit of a safety net there to uh, review acquisitions that don't um, otherwise meet uh, any notification thresholds. The second related recommendation of the task force is a separate mandatory notification regime um, for firms with, with strategic market status. So they would be subject to this additional merger regime re requiring them to notify uh, the CMA of any transactions uh, that meet a, a, a clear-cut control test, as, as they put it, um, and also at some sort of materiality threshold, whether that will be deal value uh, or otherwise. And the interesting thing about that proposal is that the task force is recommending that those mergers be subject to a lower and more cautious standard of proof. And I think that's really interesting because going back to what we were saying about the more nuanced analysis that's, that's potentially needed when you're crystal ball gazing for uh, acquisitions in the tech space where actually innovation continues uh, in the market. There is space for other services uh, and, uh, and prices do not go up. Um, then to have a lower and more cautious standard of proof, um, you know, where is the evidence uh, that, that, is, uh, that that is needed? The other proposal uh, relevant in the merger space is at the EU level. So we've had uh, announcements that the European Commission is proposing to bolster its Article 22 merger referral policy. So enabling the Commission effectively to uh, accept referrals from member states, even when a referring member state does not itself have jurisdiction uh, to review a transaction. And, and that will be interesting, uh, particularly for transactions involving uh, nascent competitors, uh, where they will end up being reviewed. And it's clear uh, that one of the key drivers behind the proposal is to capture um, uh, exactly uh, these sorts of acquisitions. And we're expecting further guidance from the Commission on that um, in, in, in 2021. That's really interesting, Sharon. I, I think what's happening on, on your side of the pond is fascinating. And, and frankly, I think um, the U.S. is playing catch up on the legislative front a little bit um, as compared to the U.K. and, and, and Europe more broadly. Um, in October of, the, of 2020, uh, the Democratic staff of the House Judiciary Committee uh, issued a, a report on, on digital markets. Uh, that follows on many like many similar reports in, in Europe and in other jurisdictions. Uh, the the report was a, was not a bipartisan report. Congressman Buck, a Republican, issued a separate report, uh, joined by several of his Republican colleagues. And, and although Democrats and Republicans in the U.S. don't necessarily see eye to eye on many uh, proposals to reform the antitrust laws, including with respect to nascent competition. Uh, Congressman Buck, in his report, identified uh, a potential area of common ground, and, and that is in reforming the burdens of proof in merger cases uh, to make them easier for antitrust authorities to challenge acquisitions of nascent competitors by large dominant rivals. Um, as, as many listeners know, the U.S. Is, is different than many other jurisdictions in that the antitrust regulators have to challenge a transaction in federal court and get an injunction from a federal judge in order to block a transaction. 
and some believe that the standards imposed uh, are, are too difficult for blocking some of these nascent uh, acquisitions. Um, the current standard requires the, the government to prove that a deal is anti-competitive, and this reform would, would flip that burden and require the merging parties in these circumstances to show that the deal is actually pro-competitive. Um, so that would, with the intent of kind of preventing or at least uh, slowing down some of these serial acquisitions that, that uh, the DOJ and the FTC believe are occurring. Now, the likelihood of passage of, of this legislation, I think, is is pretty low, but the fact that there is some bipartisan support is interesting and and, and makes it uh, certainly potential in the future Congress that, that there will be a discussion around it. So you're seeing a similar trend, Jan, in China in the sense that there is increasing focus on, on digital platform economy. Uh, in relation to killer acquisitions, uh, SMR very recently adopted draft guidelines with a view to investigate transactions that fall below the filing threshold. So this is the first time that the Chinese authority has expressed an intention to intervene in cases where future competition uh, is threatened. Uh, I mentioned earlier how jurisdictions like Austria and, uh, and, and Germany had introduced deal value uh, thresholds. It seems as if where China is headed at the moment is instead to use its power under the anti-monopoly law to intervene in transactions that fall below the filing thresholds if and when they raise competition concerns. These draft guidelines also highlight the role of data in determining market power and its importance in assessing the competitive landscape when reviewing a transaction. Some of the considerations highlighted are impact on market entry, harm to consumers. Uh, What's also interesting is that SAMR has signaled an intention not to define markets. Now, it's true that markets don't necessarily need to be defined in all cases, But a close read of these draft guidelines suggests that essentially there is a recognition that when looking at digital platform economy, digital markets and and tech in general, it can be quite challenging to define markets, especially markets that are multi-sided. And so this is a signal that SAMR is wanting to make it a lot easier for itself to challenge transactions that it considers pose and raise competition risks. Uh, One other interesting point about these drive guidelines in China are that they also consider the kinds of remedies that might be appropriate where a transaction raises issues. And interestingly, they cite a couple, divestiture of data sets, or even modifying algorithms as remedies, possible remedies for consideration. The actual analytical framework for assessing these transactions involving nascent competition uh, still remains to be developed. Uh, And as I mentioned in looking at some of the exceptional cases where potential competition has been assessed, it's not entirely obvious sometimes on the face of decisions, the analytical framework that has been adopted in reaching a decision. So just listening to this, I mean, it it sounds like a lot is up in the air. You know, there will be a lot of question marks for companies looking to do a deal that could be perceived as a potential competition deal or nascent competition deal. Um, And so I wonder if if you're 
a big multinational company, what are the ways that you can kind of best navigate this situation and still be able to do the transactions that you want to do? Um, you know, maybe we'll just run through each of you thoughts you have on, on what companies should be thinking about when they're looking to do these deals. Um, Nanette, do you want to go first? Yes, happy to. I think a key area is document control. Almost without exception in each of the transactions which uh, we've talked about here, particularly the tech-focused ones that, uh, that Jan and, uh, and Sharon mentioned, documents were at the heart of the authorities' investigations and allegations against the parties. So it's um, important that you don't create documents that may be misinterpreted for example, exaggerating potential future competition by a firm. The fact is competition authorities are increasingly requiring merging parties to produce significant volumes of internal documents. And we are seeing that decisions are being driven by those internal documents, what they say about the target, what they say about deal rationale, what they say about the economics of the deal, the economics of the innovation uh, the future competitive threats and the party's evaluation of those threats. So it will become important that, for example, where you are advocating that your transaction raises significant efficiencies, that they obviously need to be merger-specific, but they'll need to be clearly articulated and substantiated in internal documents. I think that's a great point, Nanette. Picking up on your point about efficiencies, I, I think having a clearly articulated pro-competitive rationale for a transaction is absolutely critical. Absent a persuasive pro-competitive rationale, the agencies are going to assume that the transaction is motivated by an anti-competitive intent and that it likely will harm customers. This is particularly true, I think, where the agency might see a very high purchase price for a small nascent rival. The inclination is to believe that the high purchase price is being paid to protect the acquirer's dominant position. So having a strong pro-competitive rationale that is articulated contemporaneously in the deal planning documents is absolutely key. Yeah, I would agree with that, Jan. And I think the other important aspect would be for, for companies to be looking both broadly and narrowly at the same set of facts. So to put that uh, into perspective, we've really seen the CMA do that in the context of its jurisdictional share of supply test and also in its substantive analysis of, of potential competition. So where the CMA is really looking across uh, marketed uh, activities as well as pipeline activities um, and then seeing the common, the common elements. So in the case of Roche Spark, the CMA counted numbers of employees or patents engaged in the supply or development um, of treatments. So it factored in research and development alongside uh, a marketed treatments. But then, despite going broad in that sense, the CMA was then looking very narrowly at only treatments that the CMA considered to be novel or at a phase two or more advanced stage of clinical development. So then coming in very, uh, very narrow. So I think that the takeaway here is businesses should really be prepared uh, for authorities to look at potential competition and, and, and in a way that doesn't necessarily accord with the commercial reality uh, of the market in which they compete, because that is part and parcel of the authority being able to 
look into the future and, and sort of engage in that crystal uh, ball gazing exercise that's required uh, in order to be able to assess what would this uh, nascent competitor uh, have done in the market uh, but, but for the merger. I, I agree with you, Sharon. I think what you just said just highlights one important factor that authorities, when it comes to nascent competition, are focusing very much on non-price harms, uh, most significantly harm to to um, to future uh, to future innovation. Um, competition authorities are focusing on innovation theories of harm increasingly, uh, and it will be important to for companies to consider you know, alternative poles of innovation, uh, focusing on whether these alternatives actually pose a credible, a credible threat. Um, I think what this probably means is that um, it does, will require uh, people to focus on, on the timing of, 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 of entry, uh, obstacles that might hinder the competitiveness of a new or future product. I think those are the right points, Nanette and Sharon. One other piece of advice I would add is that being coordinated across jurisdictions will be increasingly important going forward. From a U.S. perspective in particular, I think we can expect the Biden administration to be substantively more aligned than its foreign counterparts, especially in the U.K. and Europe, than the Trump administration has been during the last four years. That alignment will lead to greater coordination among the regulators in their investigations of mergers and other commercial conduct. So businesses need to be equally aligned in their defense strategy, making sure that they are taking a holistic approach that recognizes how different regulators' actions might impact other regulators' investigations. So making sure your global teams are aligned and working as one will be even more important going forward. Well, thanks very much, all. I mean, I think that gives folks a lot to to think about and mull over as they sip their mulled wine in front of the Christmas tree over, over the coming weeks. Um, but, but thanks very much to, to all of you for, for joining us today to talk us through this area, which I think is ec- extremely interesting and is going to continue to be on the radar uh, in, in the coming months and years. Um, this is our last podcast of, of 2020, and uh, we wish all of you listening uh, happy holidays and a happy new year. And we're looking forward to seeing you again in 2021 when we'll be launching the 2021 edition of our 10 Key Themes Report, which gets into what we see as the key trends and developments that will happen in the antitrust world in 2021. And we're happy that we'll be launching a new season of Essential Antitrust to go along with that report so you can hear from folks like Jan and Nanette and Sharon all year long about the most pressing topics and developments in the antitrust world. Uh, Until then, happy holidays, happy new year, and we'll see you in 2021 with more Essential Antitrust.